This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this next story is about a subject called homelessness. And it's a serious social crisis that's mostly underreported in this country. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in television to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice when he founded Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, and he's bringing their stories to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark is hearing Dennis's story. Dennis says homelessness used to be that person you didn't know. Now, homelessness is your sons or your daughters, your sisters or your fathers. Here's Mark. Dennis. Yes. We're here in Los Angeles. Yes, we are. You're homeless. Yeah, unfortunately. Tell me about it. Um, well, through a uh, avalanche of unfortunate events um, and a bad relationship, which wiped me out financially, I ended up being um, a working actor, um, uh, actually a uh, big fish in a small pond out here in uh, California and regionally. Uh, moved to New York into an apartment that I couldn't afford, and after three years, my partner split and wiped me out financially. And so uh, I had to start again. And of course, you know, when you're when you're in that state, you know, and uh, you don't have anywhere to really turn to. My mother, my mother, I have family out here, of course. My mom uh, is uh, in a senior living situation where if she doesn't need constant care, um, uh, I don't qualify for the age requirements to live in the facility. So I would get jobs, various odd jobs, like, uh, you know, working at a restaurant um, during graveyard shifts and, um, you know, come home at like three, four, five in the morning in dark clothes and a rolling duffel bag, just in case I missed the bus. And uh, people in the environment thought that I was going to be there to burglarize them or rape them or kill oh, them. Geez. So I had to, uh, I had to leave. The, the manager gave her an ultimatum. They said either you leave or your son leaves. And so I, uh, of course, my mom, you know, can't be on the streets, and it, there was no question there. So I, I, I went out and. Um, I had a car. I had a car that was given to me by uh, a boss. I was singing at a church, and a boss of mine, uh, actually a guardian angel, um, took me under his wing and gave me one of his old cars. And um, that was great, except it started to break down very soon. And uh, I couldn't afford the registration. I couldn't see paying the registration on a car that wasn't running. So I kind of found an area where I kind of did a lot of business um, at a theater, a local theater in Orange County. and. Um, I was parking on the streets, and uh, so you're living in a broke-down car. I was living in a broken-down car. Yeah, uh, many of us, many of us do. I was in that car, off and on for the better part of a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, I lived in a kitchen pantry for a little while. I lived in a garage on a pool table for a little while. Wow. Um, and then there were several months where I was actually on the streets, on the streets, and uh, that's kind of what I'm facing now as um, I became a driver for the Lyft Corporation. Uh, Lyft is like Uber. And um, I had a rental car through Hertz, but one of my local street chums decided that they wanted to take off with my car. So unfortunately, um, you know, we're trying to locate it. 
and locate them, but hopes aren't very high. Uh, hope is in short supply when you're in kind of my position. Yeah, and that's going to hurt your credit and everything hurts your credit, else. hurts everything. But, but what hurts the most is, you know, the friends and the family that used to be there um, that when you get into this situation, um, everybody just chalks it up to drug abuse or bad choices. And, um, It's not always the case. Sometimes it's just the choice is made for you and you don't have any choice. So, um, other than hope, I guess, that some things will change. Thanks. Sometimes you, you work all you can. Everybody makes bad choices. You, you yeah. do everything you can. And it's like the world's fighting against you. Yeah. And you can't give up. Yeah. I guess so. I keep trying. I keep trying. I, was, I hope it's not in vain. I was out here 23 years ago for bunches and bunches of years. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Well, no, no. You can't give up. Live in hope. You know, everybody deserves a second chance. You know, sometimes three, four, or five second chances. Yeah. And, you know, it's not easy out here. You know, when the economy tanked and, you know, gas prices went up and food went up and everything's, you know, they say that the recession is over, but you don't really see much of the effect in the daily dollar, you know, and it's still hurting us greatly. There are, there are programs in place like EBT and, you know, food stamps and things like that, but anybody who knows anything can't live off of $187 a month on food that you can't have a refrigerator for or an oven or a microwave or we don't have the amenities of home. Right. So you buy things with preservatives, things that don't go bad, things that, you know, keep well on the streets in different temperatures and climates, and most of the time it gets stolen anyway, because even amongst the streets you have people who are taking whatever you have. Um, well, you're in pretty good spirits. I try. going through all this. I try. What would you want people to know about homelessness that they probably yeah. wouldn't know or they stereotype that's wrong? Right, well, um, you know, everybody, homeless people used to have, it used to be the class system. Um, homeless people used to be that person that you didn't know, that would talk to themselves, or that didn't bathe in the corner of a doorway, that everybody just walked by and overlooked. Oh, and there's my bus, that's okay though. Um, and everybody would just overlook. Um, but uh, they're now your sons, or your daughters, your sister, your brother, your cousins. Somebody in your family, the way that it's going, at some point in time, somebody in your family is going to be homeless. And um, if you think about that person that you overlooked in the past, um, and that were a member of your family, I would hope that you would have the heart and the humanity to do something different. And you've been listening to Dennis, and he's a, a homeless person in L.A. And Mark Horavath, well, he's the one doing the interviewing. And the project is called Invisible People. It's a 501c3 dedicated to educating the public about homelessness through storytelling, news, and advocacy. For more, search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website, Invisible People TV. Mark Horvath's story, Dennis's story, and homelessness, the story of homelessness here in this country, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our regular series, The Backstory, where Alex Cortez dives into names and brands we know, but whose backstories we don't. Take it away, Alex. Horst Schultz was born in Germany at the beginning of World War II. I was born in 39 when the war started. Small village. Uh, there is no hotel. I want to emphasize that in the village. There was none. In fact, I never was in a hotel. I never was in a restaurant before. But when I was 11 years old, I told my parents I would like to work in the hotel business. And they said, well, okay, because they didn't take it serious. But I was possessed with it for some reason. We don't know why. Nobody knows why. I must have read something. I mean, that's what we assume kept on insisting on it, and that was not a good thing to do at the time in a small village in Germany. You, you went into technical jobs. You were honorable if you, be, if, if you would have been an engineer. Now, that was the ultimate honor at the time, or a doctor or something like that, of course. But, but nearly equally, if you were a carpenter or anything, that handwork, handcraft work, and I said hotel business, my, my grandfather asked me to not tell anybody. I was embarrassed. And when you come close to 14, that's a discussion in Germany because you go down in two directions. Either you learn a trade and go to that trade school at the same time, or you go into higher education. And so they ask around, teacher, so what are you going to do? And they said, you know, I'm going to go trade. What are you going to do? Hotel business. What is that? Well, I'm going to work as a cook and a waiter. Now, that was funny to everybody. The class was screaming, laughing, and when they went home, told their parents, whoa, horses, <laughs> that was funny. And that day, I happened to play in the streets, we happened to play soccer. I was a little bit late coming home, but by the time I came home, the neighbors already had run to my mother, oh, but you know what he said in school? Something very terrible. <laughs> but Horse thought he had at least one person in his life who would understand. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, it was an uncle who was kind of, a, to us, the sophisticated part of the company. So I knew he would understand what I'm going to do. And when he came to visit, I was looking forward. We all admired him because he was, in the meantime, a banker pretty well in a major bank and, and well-established. He was the intelligent part, the sophisticated part of the company. When he came, I was looking so much forward to tell him and to finally have an ally in what I want to do. So I said, I want to tell you what I'm going to do. Oh, yeah? And I was, that is, was an exciting moment, always. And I told him, and he was absolutely appalled that I would do that. Appalled. So you're going to work and in, in, uh, carry beer around with, with flat feet, he said, in fact, meaning work down in the, in the railroad station or whatever. And that's what he saw. And was totally, he was appalled that I would do that. You have to do, learn something decent that was not decent. Uh, slowly, my parents started to inquire and found there is a way to go to a boarding school about 100 kilometers away, a hotel boarding school. And then you get placed into hotels from there. That's what they did. So I left home when I was 14 found then the best hotel in the region after that to work as an apprentice, which meant busboy. 
which meant you did everything. The beginning, you washed dishes, you cleaned the ashtrays was the only thing you were allowed to clean or do in the restaurant in the beginning, in the very beginning, and done. And finally, and wash dishes, wash glasses, and, uh, sorting out, come in the morning before the breakfast, clean the room, clean it after breakfast, clean before lunch, etc., etc. I mean, it's nearly all amount of cleaning all day long. And in fact, it was kind of funny when in the very beginning of the first few days there, the maitre d', who was an exceptional gentleman, uh, his name was Carl Seidler, truly exceptional human being that you run across once in a while. And he told us there were others that started at the same time. And we lived in a dorm, in a dorm room in the hotel. And he told us now from now on, when you come to work, don't just come to work. Come to work to be excellent in what you're doing. Oh, excellent. That went over my head, obviously, at, with 14. Oh, excellent in what I'm doing. Excellent in cleaning ashtrays and excellent washing dishes and glasses and cleaning floors and so on. Well, yeah, I'll do it as excellent as I can. I didn't get the gist of what he's saying. In fact, the, the funny thing is he used the word excellent, which is really not a German word. He used that word all the time. He used German words too, but he used that word excellent, excellence. I mean, in fact, sometimes when he passed you, he looked in the eyes as excellence. He kept reminding you and selling us on doing better. And that went over my head, but slowly I grasped his thinking because not because of what he said, because how he lived. What he did, he was a human being of excellence. Everything he did. And he, he would have never en entered a restaurant without looking absolutely perfect, working in tails at a time. Totally perfect. Perfection in everything he did. So you got a sense of what he meant with excellence. Uh, tell the story and when you work during the week, once a week you go to trade school. And I went to trade school after two years, I was 16, just turned 16. When the teacher asked us, all right, now I want you to write an essay, three pages of what you now feel about your work, your profession. Now, going back, what do you do? You contemplate what, you, what you're going to write. And I, I got hit that night, very like a revelation that night. I worked in, in a corner and I felt the melody coming into the room. I mean it, you could feel it when he entered the room. You just knew it. He had a presence that it penetrated. And I turned around and he just approached the table and I saw something that, and I recognized something that I'd seen before, but it didn't really recognize, it didn't really feel it. The guests on the table that he approached were proud that he came to them. Well, this, and, 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 and it was very, very visual. You, you could actually see it in that moment. I said, wow. And I looked around. Now, compare that with what I had been told. I had been told by my parents, by everybody, once I'd got that job in the finest hotel in the region, now we could never go to a hotel like that. This hotel is only for fine ladies and gentlemen. Only for fine ladies and gentlemen. Go there and behave yourself accordingly. Now I wasn't told that once. I was told that a hundred times. Uh, in fact, the general manager of the hotel, when I arrived there the first day, told me basically the same thing. 
now I look at that moment, the matter the those fine ladies and gentlemen, and they were. We were the finest hotel close to Bonn, which was at the time the capital of West Germany. And all the diplomats and so on came in that hotel. But I saw that. This matter, this people were proud that he came to the table and I suddenly realized everybody in the room thinks that Karl Zeidler is the most important person in the room. Everybody respects him. I had the realization that was that was there all the time. I, I, it just didn't it just didn't hit me clearly. And for the first time in my life I realized that I can define myself. I'm not defined by my but my job, but the name of the job is, I define myself how I execute my life, including my job. And it, my job to a great extent, because that's where I spent my life, my time. And it was a major moment, truly a major moment in my life. And I wrote about that, and I wrote a name that is a, we are ladies and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. The very same motto of the Ritz-Carlton Hotels, because we're listening to its eventual co-founder. We can be, we can define ourselves if we define ourselves as such, or we define ourselves as servants by not being excellent in what we are doing. I got the point of excellence. I got it very strongly. And you've been listening to Horst Schultz. And my goodness, what a voice and what a story. He had this idea in this small village in Germany that he was going to be in the hotel business. And there was no hotel in town. And it was an embarrassing thing to pursue in his family. They wanted to be a doctor or an engineer or a guy who worked with his hands, a carpenter. But not Horst. And so he works in this fine hotel near Bonn. And, and there, there's this man, a maitre d'. And I love what he said about this man, about excellence. I grasped, I grasped his thinking not by what he said, but by what he did. I got a sense of what he meant by excellence. By the way, if only excellence was a part of more schools and more families, we'd have more of it in this world, and particularly how we live and not how we talk. More with Horst Schultz's story, the co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton, the backstory here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and Horst Schultz's story. After his apprenticeship, Horst went on to work at the finest hotels and restaurants in all of Europe. And then, finally, he came to America. I'm working in San Francisco in the Hilton as a room service waiter. I had come a few months before to the U.S. with the intent of going back to Europe within the next 18 months or so. Several room service supervisors who got promoted, I saw one promoter after only three months being there. And I said, wait a minute, if they get promoted, I can get promoted to room service supervisor. And then got back to Europe and having learned the language better, having worked in different cultures and having been promoted, that will be my kickoff for my career in Europe. I could see it, I knew it, I built everything around it. 
And then a few months later, sure enough, one of the supervisors was promoted out. And another waiter, not I, was promoted into the supervisor's job. That was devastating to me. It was, my whole thinking was around it. It was devastating. And of course, what do we think then? As a young man, I think that was stupidity by management, outrageous, and so on. It took me several months to slowly, and, and I suffered. I truly suffered through that. It took a few months to admit the guy that got the promotion deserved it more. I was very young, partying in the evening, being late in the morning. Be, you, you, I wasn't only tired. You could see from 100 feet that I was tired as I come to work. And sometimes five minutes late, when my manager asked me to do something related to my work, I said, why, why me? Why not the other guys? The gentleman who got promoted never did that. He was in time. He was in a good mood in the morning. He said, yes, I'm happy to, when he was asked something. I then went back to my little room. I had a little furnished room in the worst district in, <laughs> in San Francisco, but I went to my little room and talked to my maitre d', who had passed away in the meantime. Believe it or not, I can see my maitre d' in front of me right now. I had a serious conversation with him and I apologized. I went to work to work, not to be excellent. I had, it, I had drifted away. And I promised him it would never happen again. I absolutely made a commitment there. From now on, I will never go to work for anything less but create excellence in what I'm doing. I made that solemn commitment there for myself, for my maitre d'. And it was fulfilling. It's much more fulfilling than just going to work. Kept on working, was promoted, and. Uh, had following an, an incredible career. Including co-founding the Ritz-Carlton. We, particularly in our, our industry, we hire because our industry has over 100% turnover. They're constantly open jobs in the hotel and the jobs have to be filled. So, we, so what do we do? We hire. And we said finally, we're not going to do that. We're going to select. We're going to suffer through the open shop until we have somebody who actually fits into it. By the way, we went to the point, it took an average of 10 interviews before we filled the job, including dishwashers. But we didn't fill them. So we created a profile around each job category and then hired against this profile. We know that was the talent really needed for this job. For example, doorman. We interviewed our five top doormen that they had all one thing in common. Their hobby was gardening. Now, wow. With other words, they like to be outside. And the doorman, but what, what would we have done in hiring somebody? We probably would have liked somebody that loves computer work in a room somewhere by himself, and we put him in as a doorman and vice versa. But so we did selection and done, of course, orientation. And that was one of the keys, again, of our success. I'm absolutely zealous about that, that the orientation being done in nearly every company is totally wrong. What happens most of the time? Most of the time, the new employee, in, let's say it's a hotel, it could be any business. 
the new waiter comes to work, the manager makes his, we're a team speech, which is pretty pathetic. It happens everywhere. We're a team here. And then, and then what? What is a team? A team is a group of people who help each other toward a common goal, objective, vision. But the goal is not being given, it's just we're a team. And so Bill, the new waiter, now after the team speech, the boss said, now Bill, work with Joe over here because Joe knows the ropes. Which is really funny because you're not in a rope business, but somehow he knows ropes. And we turn him over. And Joe, that's there nine, nine months and knows the ropes, tells Bill on the way to the kitchen, this company is no good. That's his orientation. What do we possibly expect from that employee? It's crazy. Our orientation, we went so far as to the first day, orientation has to happen the first day. Because that is when people are willing to change their behavior. Because the first day to work is a significant emotional event when you can impact behavior. So we didn't do the second day, the first day. And so far that when we needed a certain job to be filled and we found an ideal candidate, we offered a job to the candidate, but he couldn't come to work until the day of orientation, but we paid him. The first day I had to be oriented. And the first day we talked about who we are, how do we treat guests, where are we going, what is the dream of this organization? We invited them to be part of the dream, not part of the function. We hired them and oriented them to be part of a dream, the vision of the company, to be the leader in the service industry in the world in our case. Join this dream, but we connected to the motive of the dream, also the first day. And here's why we dream about that, because that will create respect for all of us. We connected ours to them. That creates opportunity for all of us. That creates honor for all of us. We define ourselves together that creates more income for all of us. So that's why we have, that's why you have to join this dream. And Horst spoke to the very first orientation of every single one of their hotels across the world and said this. I'm president of this company. I am very important. And you could feel the shock going through the room. Anybody saying said, oh no, where I have ended here. And I said, but so are you. So are you. No human being, and I mean it, can claim importance over the name human being unless that person is crazy and I'm not crazy. And as far as your job is concerned, if you don't show up when we open the hotel and we don't make beds, we have a disaster. If we don't wash dishes, we have a disaster. If we don't check in people, we have a disaster. If we don't cook food, we have a disaster. You are very important and your job is very important. As far as my job is concerned, nobody even know if it, knows if I don't show up. And you've been listening to Horst Schultz's story, and it's part of our Backstory series. He's co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton and my goodness, what words of wisdom. And my goodness, 
If you're running an organization and you don't have that dream, what are you doing? And then making everybody a part of it. If it's not a big, bold dream, then don't expect anything to work out with your people. And by the way, all of this wisdom is in Mr. Schultz's new book, Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a World of Compromise. When we come back, more of the backstory, more of Horst Schultz's story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now the final portion of Ritz Carlton co-founder Horst Schultz's remarkable life story. You know I, I like to read to people in hospitality in services hospitality uh, I like to read always the letter that St. Benedict wrote to his monasteries as to how to treat a guest that arrives. He wrote then if a guest arrives treat him as if it was Jesus himself and, and bow down and maybe prostrate in front of him and total attention and join him for dinner if, for the meal if he's by himself. The time men tra- traveled by themselves, of course, it was in the year 500. And, and even the abbe should join him for dinner, even if the abbe is on a fast, he should pray it and be with that guest because it is Jesus himself. Which is exactly what Horst himself did, putting him on the road a lot and making it harder for his bride. 200, 250 days travel a year. It was very difficult, and we had to learn how to communicate. And the, the, the worst thing you do, and, and mind you, I, I was opening a hotel in Asia, two hotels in Asia. I come back after three weeks, and I, and I, I walk in and I taking over. We got left and my wife was going right with the kids. I had to learn to accept that this is my wife's decision. The decisions at home are my wife's decisions. She communicated. She learned how to communicate so that I was filled in and we worked very hard on that. But once I came to the realization what my wife was doing there, and I, I, took, I took it for granted too. I mean, come on, you know. But I, I, I come slowly to the recognition, my goodness, what she does. And of course, then you have moments when I'm home two days and we have four children, three of them very small, driving to the school, picking them up, different schools and so on, what a work it is. And you come to respect, and that is, what I realized suddenly, I didn't respect what my wife was doing in the beginning. I have to respect it, I have to honor it. I realized I don't, it's not enough to love my wife, I have to honor her. I have to honor her. And what I don't. So the, this realization, it evolved. It, it, it evolved our being able to handle this. She convinced me it's time to retire though now. It's time to give up. I mean, it's, this is enough. Or it's, this is, so I, I, I I left 
Prince Cardinal told that I'm leaving. In fact, we announced it throughout the company on closed circuit because everybody knew me. I opened every Ritz Garden. I did the orientation in the first 55 Ritz Gardens. It's not somebody, I did it. It doesn't matter if that was Shanghai or Hawaii or Philadelphia. I was there to open the hotel. I had training, so I knew all the employees. I was close to them. So I had to announce to everybody that I'm leaving. And so somebody, the leader familiar to them all was leaving. That wasn't easy. It wasn't easy for me, and we left on a Friday, and I'm, of course, crying. On one hand, it had to be done. On the other hand, crying anyway, leaving the, leaving the people, not leaving the job, leaving the people. And then on Monday, I said to my wife, I'm going to do it one more time. And she said, are you out of your mind? You, you, you retired on Friday. You, you, you cannot do that, and uh, this, is, uh, this is totally un uh, uh, unreasonable that you'd want to do that to me again. And I realized, and, uh, and I said, you're right. Uh, maybe just a little bit, but, but you're right. But a couple of days later, she said, I gave that a lot of thought. That's who you are. I will support you, but let's not exaggerate this time. I will support you. I, I'm your wife, and I'm here to support you. And because I know so much that's who you are, so I started Capella Hotel Company. When I walked out the day when I left Ritz-Carlton, I parked always in front of the hotel, and I walked through the hotel, through the connection to the office building, and went to my office 300 yards or whatever. I could have parked in the office building, but I didn't want to go to work in office. I wanted to work in a hotel. So I walked through, walked through the restaurant, through the, through the pastry shop, stole a couple of sweet rolls, etc. That was my routine. And I parked in front of the hotel. I had my spot in front of the hotel. And the last day, my wife picked me up and children. We got the last files. We said goodbye. And in the elevator, I said, ah. I didn't cry. And as I walked down, all the employees from downtown the hotel and here were lining my way from the elevator in the office building all the way to my car. And there I see people that started as dishwashers who were now department heads. I see people that were successful who were crying and I was crying. And, uh, and I saw, for example, I saw E.B who came in as a refugee from Nairobi, working as a dishwasher. And he's now, by the way, manager in a Marriott over here in the neighborhood, was long-time hotel manager in the Ritz-Carlton downtown. He became in as a dishwasher, and it was, I saw him in orientation. I gave the orientation. But soon later, I walked by the dishwashing area and I've forgotten who that was. And there was this one kid who said very friendly, hello, good morning, sir, how are you today? And remember, noticing that he's very clean. It's a very dirty job, believe me, steam and dirty dinner. But he looked very, very clean. So I didn't give it much other thought, but a couple of days later, as I walked by again, again, sir, good morning, how are you today? And I look, is this refugee? He was staying in front of the dish where I could see even his shoes were shining. I said, wait a minute. And I said to the 
to the head of the department, this kid, is he working at all? I mean, he's always clean. He's not working. Right away, my suspicion, I guess that's my, my, my German cynicism that came through. I said, he's so, he's so clean, he, he can't be working. He said, Mr. Schulze, you're wrong. He's the hardest worker I have. But he's so proud. He changes a couple of times a day. He's a proud young man. He works unbelievably hard. Whoa, yeah. Pretty soon I come, go through the area again, and he's working room service as a waiter. The room service manager asked for him because he was exceptionally became a waiter. A few months later, he worked as a captain in banquet. Everybody wanted him. He grew and grew. See, see this man created excellence in what he was doing. And he gets the reward. Everybody gets the reward. The reward is going to come sooner or later. And, and here's this dishwasher who became a hotel manager, a little refugee from Nairobi. And he, he realized, I define myself. I define myself as excellent. And you get the rewards. Rewards always come with that. Even if it is just knowing I truly am the best here. In America, to create difference is it's truly up to you. That's why I get so annoyed when people blame other things. In this country, it's up to you. Create excellence and you will get rewards. And that is not true in other countries. There is still a hierarchy situation. Now, it's, I feel it's better, frankly. But during my career time, I could not have, no matter how good I would have done a job, I would have become the maitre d' somewhere, but not the general manager. After all, the general manager has to come from a certain college, etc., etc. And that's why this is the land of opportunity. And it is so angering me when Americans say we don't have opportunity. Everybody has to, everybody. And, and, and we still sometimes blame others when we don't make it. There's only one person to blame. And I can introduce you to him. Go in the washroom, look in the mirror, and you will see him. Period. Of course, there's circumstances of illness and so on. Of course, we know that all. But as a generality, we always blame society. We blame the president. We blame the mayor. We blame this. We blame. Stop blaming. It's not necessary. It's wrong in this country because this country gives you the opportunity that you want. Period. And what storytelling, folks, and what lessons, what life lessons? You've been listening to... Horst Schultz, co-founder of the Ritz-Carlton, author of Excellence Wins, A No-Nonsense Guide to Becoming the Best in a World of Compromise. Don't just buy one book, buy two. Go to Amazon, go wherever you need to go. Get the book, read the book, and pass around this file to everybody you know. Every school teacher, anyone who influences another human being, anybody who runs anything needs to listen to this. Because excellence is within reach of everybody. If somebody would just... Well, introduce them to excellence. And my goodness, how he dealt with not getting that promotion all those years back. And he looked within and he looked in the mirror and he realized that guy deserved the promotion. And he made a vow to himself and to, as he put it, his maitre d'. Because that guy had passed, but he was still in, forced. And he said, I went to work to work not to be excellent. I made a promise to myself. I made a solemn commitment to be excellent. 
and to pursue excellence. And I love what he said about serving. He said that he talked about that letter to St. Benedict that he wrote to monasteries on how to treat guests. Treat them as if Jesus Christ himself had arrived. What a thing to say. Horst Schultz's story, a great American immigrant story, a great American story, and a great backstory, a part of our backstory series here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Our next story, well, it's one about service, love, and sacrifice. Let's follow Eileen Hall's incredible journey across Europe as she searches for her husband in the middle of World War II. Eileen was a member in the Women's Army Corps, or WAC. We got together with Eileen and her daughter Sherry, who both live in Canton, Ohio. Here's Eileen. I'm from Canton, Ohio. I was born in 10, 11, 23, and my mother and dad had a restaurant in downtown Canton, and we had a hotel up above the restaurant, and that's where I was raised. We lived right across the street from McKinley High School, so all I had to do was walk to, for high school was walk across the street and go to school. After my mother made it to my high school graduation, and shortly after that, she passed on, and my dad remarried, and I felt very uncomfortable at home with a different mother, really. And you were working at? Kempkin Roller Bearing Company. So it's a long time. That's 75 years ago, you know, so I'm trying to remember. A lot of it I'll never forget, but... Uh, and there I met a girl, and we became friends, and we worked in the stationary supply office. And... Uh, she had a boyfriend from Galleon, Ohio, and every time he came up to see her, he brought his brother. So she said, do you think you'd mind dating his brother if he brings him up? And I said, oh, no. Well, that was it, because we just melded together, and it's just worked out. So, But he was being drafted like all the... that He was going to be sent to Oklahoma. So... Um, after my dad remarried, I just didn't feel comfortable at home. So I said, I think I'll, I always wanted to go to California. So I said, I think I'll go to California because I've always wanted to go there. So I boarded a train and it stopped in Oklahoma. And I thought, well, I'll just see, you know, him while I'm here. So that's as far as I got. <laughs> we got married. <laughs> After I was there a few days, we had to go through blood tests, and it was really, you know. So and we were married in a parson's office. And then it wasn't long after that that he was 
sent overseas. So I thought, well, since I'm married to him, I'll go back home and see what I can do. You know, so I went back home and I decided to enlist in the service. So I went in downtown Canton where they had their recruiting office and told them I would like to join the Army. Well, the Navy I really wanted, but you couldn't get in that one until later. So um, I decided I'd get in the Army if I could. So even though I was married, I had to get my dad's consent. Because of my age, I couldn't do it unless I had my parents' consent. So I went to where he worked and told him, and he said, well, if I don't do this, you'll do something else crazy. So he signed. He was a World War I veteran. So he signed, and I took it back. And after that, I uh, got into uh, basic training in Daytona Beach, Florida. From there, I was, uh, I volunteered. They said as we were being interviewed, the girls that had already volunteered said, you'll be sorry. <laughs> and so, uh, but I volunteered for everything, so I always got to pick up things that I wanted to do. So I thought that was a good idea. From there, I was sent to Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia for driver training. And uh, I led a convoy through Georgia as one of our tryouts, you know, to see how we did. And so, uh, and then we had to uh, go in gas chambers and take off of the gas mask and stay for a few minutes and then go out and catch your breath again. So, And then uh, we had to lay down and they fired shots over us, you know, to see how we'd react. And then we had uh, to go through other training. Abandoning ship, we had to go, you know, to the top of the ship that would be and go down the sides. And a couple of the girls were just terrified of doing it so I helped along with them and then after that was all done I was sent to Fort Lewis Washington and I was only there for a little while the the fellows in the barracks weren't used to having women there and boy every time we'd walk out everywhere phew, there were guys walking with us so but anyway, I volunteered. They asked for volunteers to go overseas. So um, I volunteered, but there were too many, so I wasn't going to get to go. But at the last minute, one gal dropped out, and so I took her place. And then it wasn't long after that that we were sent to Fort Dix, or New Jersey, and boarded the Queen Elizabeth and headed for France. So. It, on a ship that in peacetime would accommodate two people, there were 24 wax in one room. And, and then we went on and we landed at Glasgow, Scotland, in the Isle of Clyde. And there we were met with the Red Cross and the Salvation Army, and they gave us food and until and they decided where we were going to go from there. And some of us boarded a train and headed for Sutton Coalfield, England. That's where I was going to be stationed for a while. And we've been listening to Eileen Hall's journey to find her husband in the middle of World War II. A great backstory. I can't wait to hear more. I'm sure you can't either. Again, send your stories like this. 
to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There are so many great stories to be told by you, the listeners, and we look forward to hearing more from you. When we come back, more of Eileen Hall's story here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue here on Our American Stories with Eileen Hall's story. And my goodness, she goes from a small town in the Midwest, a small town in Ohio. She boards a train to head to California, stops in Oklahoma to see her boyfriend. Well, she doesn't continue the trip. She gets married. He gets shipped off. And what an adventurer this lady was, my goodness, and so many other women who served in the war. She wanted to be in the theater and volunteered for it. Let's pick up where we last left off. Some of us boarded a train and headed for Sutton Coalfield, England. That's where I was going to be stationed for a while. So um, that's where I had to drive a Jeep. I, I went through the motor corps, so I was allowed to drive a Jeep and up to a two and a half ton truck. So. I drove the, uh, everybody in Sutton Coalfield in England had to list a, if they had a room available for GIs because they didn't want the women staying in rooms, they wanted the men to be there. So that's what I did for a while and got them all done and, and then uh, I was sent, I, I drove a major there that uh, Four of, four of us were drivers, and I, we all drove an officer, so I drove a major, so we were on call 24 hours a day for whatever reason they wanted us, so, but, uh, well, I had to drive in the fog so bad that I had to put my foot up, they drive on the left side on the curb, so I would know where I was going, and because of that, my left leg is, is not as big as my right one. It took that much, it froze, you know, and I had to go back to the barracks and they put me behind the bakery and so I could thaw out to my leg was so frozen from driving. So uh, we had gone through many air raids at night and, and one of the gals said, if I'm going to get killed, I'm going to do it right here. And so the rest of us decided we'd stay together. So that was it, <laughs> because there were nightly air raids, you know. So after I left England, I went to France and was with the post office there as a driver. So every morning I'd drive into Paris, and you could there were, the streets were empty except for people going through garbage cans trying to get something to eat, people and dogs, and that's something I'll never forget. And as I drove to the post office that I was be at, just as I drove in, something cracked on the 
uh, steering wheel and I couldn't steer it, but I was already there. So I was, I felt that was a blessing because if I had done that out in the, you know, out on the streets, it would have been something else. I have faith and I, I just felt I'd be protected whatever I did because I, if I volunteered for something, I felt that that's what I should do. So I just had a different life than some of the other whacks. But <laughs> the Battle of the Bulge was going on then, and they were bringing the wounded into the uh, hospital in Paris. And uh, our commanding officer was called from from the hospital and asked him to send some wax down to help. The wounded were coming in so fast. So um, our, our commanding officer called me and said, you know, gonna take some wax to the hospital. So I got a ton and a half truck and loaded it with wax and drove into the hospital in front of the hospital and walked in and here the GIs are all laying on the floor and you could just walk sideways. And so they, we would, kneel down and talk to them and take, you know, we all went and talked to each one and asked what, where they were from and just got them calmed down before, and then they finally found room for them all. So, but when I had time off, I was allowed to take the Jeep and I became acquainted with two fellows from Iowa. And one was, uh, had his uh, left leg amputated below his knees, so he was gonna be sent home. And he said he hated to see, go home without seeing Paris. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do. So I went to my commanding officer, told her the story, and she says, you take a Jeep and show him wherever you want to go. So over there were two whacks in the back and me driving and him sit beside me and I took him all over Paris. So he was, you know, excited about that. And uh, we kept in touch for years after I got home, so. I got a letter from my husband saying he was going to be sent to the CBI, that's the China Burma. And I thought, and I started crying. And the officer was below me, and she came up and wanted to know why I was crying. And I said, Well, my husband's going to be sent to the CB area. And I said, I, I'd probably never see him again. And she said, I'll see what I can do. So she got me orders attached to Mark Clark's. But he, he never knew I was part of his service. So, but that got me to early airport and asked, you know, if anybody was going to Paris. And there, there was a plane just out there that was going to be going to Italy. And I told my story to the guy at the desk. And so he said, that plane right there, you can get on. So they put down the Bombay doors and I walked out and and they, one on one side and one on the other, lifted me up and put it in where the gun turret is. And that's how I rode from there to, to Italy. And I got off of the plane and I was standing on the road and I didn't realize right in front of me was the Tower of Pisa because I didn't realize it was that big, you know. And so I walked out and I started hitchhiking. And along came a British, guy in a truck with three uh, soldiers in the back and one was they were attending to one and I said what happened she said he got hurt but not by fire I don't know exactly how he got hurt and they're going into Rome so 
they stopped for water and the driver of the truck had to come back and stand in front of me so I could lean to the back because the people just came from everywhere and they wanted to touch me and you know and I I didn't know what to do so they looked out for me and then we left and went on to Rome to the Red Cross there and they put me up for the night the next morning was a Sunday so it was church so I went down and went to church and after a little while before church started, a fellow sat down beside me and he looked at my patch. He says, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no, I, and I told him my story. He said, I'll see what I can do. So the next day, he had gotten permission from his officer and he was able to take me from Rome to Milano. And uh, on the way, it started to rain and the fellow didn't know how to do the, the top to the Jeep, so I showed him how to do that. And he uh, took me up and my husband was waiting for me, waiting there, so. We had our honeymoon on Lake Como and I had our own villa attached to a regular one, which is owned now by George Clooney. And I'm sure George Clooney doesn't know it, but I'm gonna write a letter to him sometime if he ever gets it. The Villa Diaz Esti. Yeah, so, yeah, that was the Fifth Army Rest Camp. So, we left from La Harve on the E.B. Alexander, headed for the United States. As we pulled into New York Harbor, all the lights came on, and they took us off the boat and fed us the best Thanksgiving dinner we ever had. <laughs> so, and from there, we had to go to Fort Dix to get released from the Army. And then I boarded a train for Canton, Ohio. And when I got to Canton, there they were, my husband and my, my dad, and just welcomed me home. He got home seven days before I did. But other than that, why, I think my experience was something that not too many people have the opportunity to experience. So that's my love story. <laughs> and I love to tell it. <laughs> so, and thanks for the opportunity to tell it. So, that's it. And that's it. And thanks for the opportunity to let us tell it, Eileen. And what a beautiful story about so many things, particularly just a sheer sense of adventure and independence. I think about the coddling of 17, 18, and 19 year olds today. And this lady and her husband off to Europe to fight Nazis, searching for each other, learning how to drive trucks and tanks, supply lines to defeat one of the world's worst enemies in history without reservation and with a sense of joy afterwards. My goodness, she looks back at this as perhaps the most important and best time of her life. Imagine meeting up with a husband in Lake Como and having your wedding celebration there, your honeymoon there. And then coming back to New York Harbor and having, as she put it, the best Thanksgiving meal ever. Eileen Hall's journey to find her husband in the middle of World War II. Her story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about just about everything here on this show, as you know. And today, we have a story from Damon Cox. He was born in Arkansas and then moved to Pontotoc, Mississippi. He's sharing with us his life as a semi-professional video gamer. Here's Damon. I started off uh, playing video games as a kid. Uh, we were like a super, super poor family. We lived in a trailer out in front of my Mimi's and Papa's house, so there wasn't really much to do. So video games was kind of a way to escape. My parents used to have an Atari and a Nintendo. So it was just a thing that I used to play with a lot. And it was just something I really, really enjoyed. And uh, once I started getting into like more of the shooter based video games, friends would come over and I would play them. and. I would beat them and uh, I was just the best one out of our little friend group. And then uh, later on we would eventually move and get internet and I was able to play online and I was able to beat uh, multiple people like all around the world. And then eventually I decided to start running some like game battle tournaments which are online tournaments. And I was able to win some of those and it got some recognition and some traction from some of the top players. So I was able to play with them and then one day I finally just got up the courage to go into uh, Halo 4 AGL Nashville and I was able to compete in Nashville. At Nashville, I was, I think, 13, 14. I walked in and it was a little game studio, like game arcade type thing. And um, there was hundreds of people there. And I was just really excited uh, to be there. And then also getting to meet all these people that I've been playing with online and kind of like my heroes at the time. It was really cool seeing like all of them and being able to like see that they're like one of us uh, in a way. So I was able to play with them and then um, I got to go on main stage and compete and seeing like your uh, gamer picture and everything like that brought up and having like fans like kind of say your name and stuff was uh, a really big moment for me, especially at like 13. It is just, yeah, no one's ever doing that. And I was pretty much the youngest one there. There may have been a couple who were around my age, but everyone else was about 16 to 20 years old. And so I just was kind of like the short little skinny guy who was just there to play video games. And But honestly, I felt so at home because everybody there was just so nice, so outgoing, just, just happy to be around one another who shared the same interests. Ended up winning, and I came back and surprised my parents with a $15,000 check. Uh, at first, they were kind of iffy. My mom was definitely like, kind of like, okay, maybe you can't do something. But my dad was like, I don't know about this. And it was so new, a lot of people really didn't know anything about it. So my dad definitely was not on board yet. But my mom started like, okay, maybe you can play and everything like that. But at the same time, like what 13 year old is going to get a full yes from both parents saying, yeah, let's just spend more time playing video games. Not many people are going to like be able to convince their parents. Now, right now, it's becoming more of a common thing because like uh, Fortnite is allowing uh, this opening for like $3 million tournaments. So a lot of parents are actually like buying coaches and stuff like that for their kids um, to try to like get better at video games, just like uh, baseball, you'll hiring a pitching coach or anything like that. That's what they're doing for video games now. So it's kind of like becoming the norm, but definitely 10 years ago, it was not even uh, like an idea to have someone literally come home and go, you know what, I want to not go to school anymore. I want to do video games full time. There's no way that would slide <laughs> 10, 20 years ago. 
whenever I was like first like diving into video games a lot more, I would try to play eight to ten hours a day. I would literally come home, throw my backpack on the ground. I would try to do my homework on the like on the school bus on the way back, just so I had more time to play video games. So I would get home and start playing video games. Well, when my parents got off work, they were like, "Why didn't you like uh, go hit with your brother, or why didn't you shoot basketball, or go outside and just kind of play around in the woods?" And I was like, well, I wanted to play video games. Well, my parents would say like, we'll go outside and play or play outside with your brother and everything. And then after you play for a little bit, you can come back in and uh, play video games. So I would go outside pretty much just try to stall time until I can come back in and play video games. And then uh, whenever I finally got to start competing in tournaments and starting to win, I found out I was kind of good at it. Started making a decent amount of money. I ended up making about 125, 120 grand total was able to help pay for my first vehicle and help pay for my first like three years of college. Now that doesn't mean that I always made good decisions with the money. I also splurged on different like gaming accessories. Like I always wanted the the newest and the best stuff. So I got a new headset, a new monitor, uh, two custom controllers. Uh, so I, I definitely didn't make the smartest decision with the money, but I was able to make a couple good decisions where it doesn't look as bad now when I talk about it. <laughs> So I, I competed uh, all the way up to 15 and like 15, 16 years old. And then I kind of just started diving into sports a lot more. So I started playing baseball. I played varsity baseball. So we made it to state and we ended up losing state. And that kind of was like, okay, maybe baseball isn't going to be the best for me. So I ended up transitioning into bodybuilding. So um, whenever I was younger, my dad ended up just running away from us my last memory we were at a stoplight and he opened the door and took off running like like just took off running whenever we got home there was actually police officers who ended up uh taking my mom off of a um miscommunication because uh my real dad like pinned these charges on my mom and so she ended up going away and uh, we're just was stuck in the trailer until our mama came and got us. My mama had this uh, guy like come over and take care of us. Uh, and he ended up becoming my real dad after my mom got out of jail. They hit it off real good and uh, they got married. And then after that, they adopted me. It's not really something I remember a whole lot of. I remember the adoption part, but uh, the age is kind of like a little iffy for me. I don't remember everything, but my brother definitely doesn't know anything at all. And it was just something that I had to like step up and like be the big brother for and like try to show him something else to take his mind off of. Like, so we just threw ourselves into competition. So competitions was always the thing that kind of helped me escape. Like that thrive to be better was always something that I wanted to do. And it kind of just rubbed off on my little brother. So we competed in many different things. Like my brother did cage fighting. We grew up doing different MMA stuff. I played baseball. He played football. I, I don't feel sorry for myself at all. We found a, a dad who was literally 10 times better than what the real one was supposed to like ever be. Like The dad I have now has made me into something that I am like so proud to be. Literally, the actions of my, my real dad um, made me just thrive to want to be better, to try to help out my mom because, like, he just ran away and like we, like we weren't good enough so i was like well i'm gonna be good enough for this this family so i want to just make my mom proud and make my dad proud that's all i want to do
whenever I was trying to become a professional gamer, we needed a place at a like a certain ranking. We ended up placing outside that ranking and it kind of brought me down because I put everything I had into that time and I just wasn't good enough to win. So I kind of just got real down and was like, you know what, maybe it's time for me to kind of like pin this up and try something else. That's whenever I went to bodybuilding. Like that's when bodybuilding was kind of like my escape now. So I ended up selling all my stuff, actually. I sold my custom controllers. I sold everything but my monitor. Monitor was the only thing I kept. But bodybuilding kind of helped me escape because of how like the schedule was. Wake up early, two workouts a day, uh, meal prepping, uh, eating every like two and a half hours. And you're listening to Damon Cox and what a unique voice and what a unique story. The video gamer aspect, no doubt, is unique. But my goodness, what happened to him as a young man watching his father just ditch him and ditch the family? And another man coming in and loving on this young man and ultimately marrying his mom. The dad I have now has made me into something I'm so proud to be, is what Damon said. And so for all of you out there thinking about entering into a young man's life or a young lady's life, a young girl's life, this is what the difference can be. And this is what the product can turn out to be if if you give that love to a stranger. When we come back, more of Damon Cox's story here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and we've been listening to the story of Damon Cox and his life as a semi-professional gamer. After a few years of video games, he decided to give them a break and try something new, bodybuilding. I started off on everything whenever my friend wanted me to come spot him one day at the gym. So I, I went up uh, to spot him and after we got done doing a chest press, he goes, uh, let's see how much you can do. So I was like, okay, let's see what I can actually do. And we put a 25. I was like, I'll definitely be able to do that. And I failed miserably at it. And I was like, okay, I need to start working on this. So it started eating me just alive inside of like how weak I was. I was 135 pounds my beginning of my senior year. And this is when I started working out. My friend's dad just bought a gym. So there was no excuses not to work out. So I started working out with all of them. And then by the senior year, I was 197 pounds and I had stretch marks out of the wazoo. So I put on a lot of size, but it was through intense training, like intense training, at least six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. So I ended up getting a coach and he was able to show me how much water to take in, how much food to take in. But uh, we needed to do a bulking series because I was a little bit like smaller at the time. So we did a 16-week bulk, and I was on 5,200 calories at first. And it seemed like a lot, but I wasn't gaining as much weight as he wanted to. So he actually bumped me up to 7,000 calories total at the end of it. I was eating so much, so much. I would wake up hungry throughout the night, and I had peanut butter next to my bed. And I would literally wake up, do like two bites of peanut butter, and just roll over and go to bed. And then uh, after this, we decided to do a cutting phase so I can get ready for a show. So during my cutting phase, though, 
uh, we had a little scare. Um, I left a shaker bottle out in the car uh, overnight. And the very next morning I went up to uh, make a protein shake. I couldn't find my shaker bottle. So I went out to the car and got it. Didn't think nothing of it. I just rinsed it out and then made my protein shake. Well, about two days later, I started uh, throwing up really bad. And it was honestly the worst pain in my life. My organs, I felt them contracting and actually like coming up. Um, and then I ended up passing out and my roommate found me in a trash can and brought me to the hospital. Well, uh, the shaker bottle had black mold in it and I was drinking out of it and I ended up infecting like six of my organs, five or six of my organs. And, uh, they said like 30 minutes to an hour, I would have died. So after that, I, they told me it would take two months to heal. I gave it two weeks, got back into the gym well, going into the show, I wasn't as defined as I was due to um, the sickness, but I still looked okay. And so I placed second in that show, and it was something where I was like, okay, I was able to blame it on something else instead of just me. I was like, okay, I was sick, so let's let's see how good I can actually do this. So the next year, I took off of college. So to become a professional bodybuilder at the time, uh, you needed a place at least top three in a state show and then go to nationals and place in a national show. So my whole goal was to literally just go to nationals. So we competed in the Southern Classic to compete. I ended up placing second there. It was not even close, honestly. Kind of like let me know that I wasn't going to be able to make it far without steroids. And I decided I wasn't going to do steroids. So it was time to just give up on that. But when Fortnite came out, I literally played one game and I was like, okay, I've got to, I've got to do this. And this was on like the decline of bodybuilding for me. After I played that first couple of games of Fortnite, I was like, okay. And literally the next morning went out, bought a uh, headset, controller, Xbox. So I started back playing like 10 hours a day. And when Apex came out, I just dove straight in and I was running game battles off the start on that game and uh, just still doing that just making steady income off that game so uh right now a lot of colleges are trying to make teams uh for like different esports teams because they see how big that is taking off now because like recently league of legends actually had more viewers than the super bowl so uh people are starting to like figure out okay maybe video games are kind of here to stay so it's getting a lot of attention now so a lot of colleges are actually handing out scholarships for their like sports team, so their esports team. And I say within five years, we'll have like SEC teams, we'll have like the Pac-10, everything like that, or the Pac-12, whatever. Um, we would have like actual like big, big teams playing now uh, against each other. So it'll be really exciting to see like how much video games progress in about five to 10 years. So like Battle Royale is kind of what's hitting the scene right now. It's uh, pretty much like 60 to 100 players drop in on a map and you just scavenge your loot and the last player lives um, is like going to be the winner. So that's the thing that's like making Fortnite so big. Uh, there was games who did it before, but no one did it to like the standard that Fortnite did it. They did it with color. They did, they did it with pop. If you like see Fortnite, it's so colorful. They do like these creative skins. And so it was very easy to draw like a younger age to play a game. And they also try to keep it uh, friendly. They don't actually like call it kills. They call it like frags because a lot of parents try to pin psychotic behavior on video games. It's like, okay, well, if they're killing like little bots and little characters, 
then it may have them a tendency to try to like grow up wanting to like shoot and stuff like that. But Fortnite tries to take all that away and just takes it about the video game. So a lot of people look at gamers as just antisocial people who don't want to go outside, uh, usually unathletic. Um, they just like pin them as like they're in their mom's basement playing video games. Whenever I was going to these uh, tournaments, I figured out a lot of them played sports. Uh, a lot of them were just very, very outspoken. They love just talking to you and meeting new people and everything. So it was crazy to see how different the stereotypes are. Now, of course, there's going to be like antisocial people, like even in sports today, like there's going to be players who don't want to go in front of the camera, just like video game players. Like there's a lot of people who maybe like they come from a background like me who didn't take it as well as I did. And they had a rough like growing up. So they go, OK, maybe like I, I want to stay inside. I don't really want to talk to people all that much. Uh, but video game players, from what I like got to know them as they were very outspoken they loved meeting new people loved being around a community who loved video games the best i've ever felt was uh during video games compared to playing in the state championship of baseball uh being on stage in bodybuilding and being on stage for uh video games video games is by far uh the best feeling i had there's something about being on stage with uh 10 other gamers and having 500 to a thousand people watching you you turn around and you see this big screen and it's your screen was brought up there because maybe you made the play of the of the game and everybody like chanting your like gamer tag so my gamer tag was hyper so uh everybody like chanting hyper it was just one of the best feelings it felt like i was i did something i accomplished something there is definitely people that I look up to that I know that I will probably never be as good at, but that's not really a mindset that I like to have. I like to literally see someone who's better than me and be like, okay, well, let me try to match that skill level. So whenever I watch someone play, I literally look at them and I'm like, okay, what are they doing different? What is their decision makings that are making them like this elite player? It pretty much like eats me alive that why am I not that good? So I start practicing more. If they're doing a mechanic that I'm not doing or they're playing on a setting that I'm not playing on, then I swap to that and I'm trying to match them, but not only match them, be better than that. Seeing like five, 10 people who are literally light years ahead of me is amazing because it's still a learning experience for me. I, I figured like, okay, I'm getting really good at this because like right now I'm like with on Xbox, I'm within the top 30 uh, in the United States. And then right after my I broke my hand, I realized how short this can actually be for me as a career. Having a backup plan and a main career is still the like the main thing I need to have a priority on. So I'm trying to figure that out. And gaming is literally just the secondary just to pay bills right now while I just finish up my degree. So uh, I probably play about five to six hours a day right now but there is days where i do play more and there is days that i do play less but i try to play at least five to six hours a day that's the only way to pretty much stay consistent at the top level and uh, i think that's a low number actually because back in the day whenever i was competing i was playing for about eight to ten hours a day but uh, it seems like a lot everybody's like you're sitting inside but if you think about it, I mean, like, how much does your son play baseball? Like, they have probably double practices like I did. When they get home, they're probably throwing the tennis ball against the, the wall, trying to, like, work on ground balls, going outside, hitting wiffle balls and stuff like that. So it averages about the same. If you want to be the best at something, you got to put the hours in. So that was that, that's something that 
I definitely see changing though as I'm trying to like work my way into strength and conditioning side because I would love to be a strength and conditioning coach. So finishing up the college degree and getting a good job, that's kind of my new mindset. So I would love to take my dad to a UFC fight um, in Madison Square Garden. That's like my dream bucket list to give him. And my mom's always wanting to go to Hawaii. So my new goal is it's not be a pro gamer, not be the pro bodybuilder. It's literally just give each of them something that because they gave me everything. So now it's like I want to do that for them. So that's my new like kind of sport, I guess, is that. And you've been listening to Damon Cox and what a delight from gamer to bodybuilder and back to gaming. Fortnite just grabbed him. Plus, the life filled with steroids didn't really appeal to him. Smart kid. Really smart kid. And now a young man. And gaming, well, it's becoming a national, well, it's become a national sport. Like it or not, and there are a lot of critics. The number of people doing this, the number of colleges turning these things into scholarships, um, it's just happening. And the amount of money being made in the industry, it's for real. And that he wants to now take his dad to NYC to see UFC at Madison Square Garden. And he wants to take his mom to, on a Hawaiian vacation, tells you the kind of son he is. Damon Cox, his story, a local story here in Mississippi, here on Our American Stories. Mm-hmm.